When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. I'm Jonathan London, if this is your first episode, and we'd like to talk movies, video games, comic books. I hope you enjoyed the last episode I put up on the feed, where we were talking all about PC gaming with my friend Zach Shutt from Zydax Games. Uh, a lot of people really enjoyed that episode. We'll try and do more video games in the future, but if you guys are really into video games, go ahead and subscribe to our brand new show, all about Xbox uh, Live, the Xbox Pass. Uh, Derek is a huge fan of that stuff and he's been putting together a pretty uh, amazing uh, show called Xbox Live Passengers I think it's called and um, and it, it, it it's definitely all the video game talk I need to get and after E3 listening to he and Josh Jackson wrap everything up was pretty awesome uh, and uh, there's a lot of games to look forward to but uh, I have a special episode here today I'm sitting here in Lamy, New Mexico about 12 miles from Santa Fe um, and I'm sitting here with one of my good friends, recent friend. We've only been friends a few years, but I consider you a friend and mentor in a lot of ways, Mr. Ronald Ross. Uh, an older gentleman, but not too much older than me, would you say? <laughs> I'll be 87 in November. You will, you will be what? When? <laughs> I just turned, I think it turned, I turned 40. But, um... But you know what? That's not going to stop us. Uh, but what I love about my conversations with you is that we, I like that every time we get together, you tell me stories from old Hollywood. You moved to California in 1942 to get into the pictures. Is that 42, right? I was 10 years old. So when did you move? So you didn't move there to get in the pictures? I did move. At 10 years old, they don't have too many kids in the film business, no. So what happened? It happened in the 50s. In the 50s. Yeah. So you told me something earlier in 1942. You were a kid in 1942, and you did move to California. I did, and when I, the 1942 was telling you about a Jackie Gleason appearance mm-hmm. in a movie that Fox made called, I believe, Orchestra Wives, kind of a B movie, and Gleason played the uh, played the double bass in the film. The and one. you were and you were a kid when you saw it. I was a kid when I saw it. I made it in about 42. Yeah, mm-hmm. my memory's right. It could be a little later. But where did you guys move from? Far off, mystical New York. Uh-huh. And what was, the, what was the impetus for moving to California? I was a, a sickly little kid with bronchitis. And California was where you sent everybody. Well, you, the people who knew, they sent you to New Mexico. But there were Indians there, so we all went to California. In the 40s. And, okay, so what did your father do for a living? Dad owned a, uh, an engraving business. He was a brilliant engraver. Uh-huh. 
And there was work like that in California? And you could... No, he dad went into real estate in California. Yeah, I imagine you'd go into real estate in California because there was nothing but there was no. nothing out there in 1942. What was Los Angeles? You guys moved to Los Angeles. We moved to L.A., right. What was Los Angeles like in 1942? They used to call it 100 Communities in Search of a City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could ride, if you remember Roger Rabbit? Of course. I used to ride the big red car down Venice Boulevard on the way to school. It was a nickel a ride. It was silent, and there were lots of them. Mm-hmm. And then General Motors realized if they couldn't kill the system, they'd never sell any cars in L.A. Yeah. So they bought up, and that's the, that's the theme of Roger Rabbit. It's genuine. They bought up all the companies, and you can see movies and old photographs of the red cars, which were perfectly operational, stacked 40, 50, 70 feet tall on one on top of the other. They sent them to the t- and suddenly you had to have a car. You know, I was just telling somebody about that uh, General Motors uh, story because there were so many amazing houses that that are along that rail line. Because uh, I was telling a friend of mine who had just moved to L.A. and he's from Mexico and he doesn't have a car, he doesn't have a license yet, and so he's reliant on public transportation in Los Angeles, which is a little tough. But they are expanding. The subway back out, and now you can actually take it from downtown to Santa Monica. They've expanded the, the subway, and some of it's above ground. They've expanded it out to Los Angeles, and it just seems. And it was a big to do when they finally opened that final station in Santa Monica, and you can get yourself to the beach. Um, but it it just felt sad to me knowing that Los Angeles is full of these old rail lines that have concrete over them or have been ripped out, and you still see. Uh, things like Angel's Flight downtown, which is the shortest railroad. And Angel's Flight costs two cents a ride. Did it really? It's yeah. still in downtown L.A., and they still run it. Yeah. but That was it, two cents a ride. And it just takes you up the hill. A funicular, yes. But there were several of those trolleys that take you up hills. But the big one downtown, mm-hmm. because there were nothing but drunks and uh, unsavory characters, if I can <laughs> use an archaic word, uh, in that area. And, yes... Angel's Flight. My God, I haven't thought of that in years. Yeah, they, they they renovated it and they just opened it up a few years ago. But you, but if you're in Los Angeles and you and you know LA well, you and you've lived there for a while, you'll start to discover all these hidden uh, places where there used to be a railroad or a railway, or the hidden steps in Los Angeles that go between homes, or they lead nowhere. <laughs> you, you'll start to see places that just don't lead anywhere. And they're all holdovers from the 1940s, early 50s, when they started ripping all these railways out. And um, homes along Adams Boulevard are beautiful craftsman homes. But now you ask, why would you ever want to live right next to the 10 Freeway? Um, But the 10 Freeway was placed there in, what, the 60s? I think so. Adams was where it was in the 20s and uh, it was very white. There were no people of color allowed. In that there. was basically the suburbs for Los Angeles. Some of it, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was old money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of stories about what happened when um, old money began to lose its grip. White old money, mm-hmm. you know, Protestant. The Jews were in Beverly Hills, the Gentiles were around Hancock Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody admitted that was how it was working, but that was the reality. And so you're 10 years old, you're growing up in L.A., and L.A. is changing pretty frequently, right? Like pretty rapidly, is the word. After the war. After the war, just people started moving west. Well, after the war, a lot of men didn't want to go home. They'd seen too much, and California beckoned with its fruit trees and its palm trees. And these are people that were in the the Pacific. And just all the GIs. We had Mm -hmm. like 3 million coming back. 
they began building freeways and to places that were very far out, like Pomona. <laughs> and on the way to Pomona on the freeway, there was a very famous sign which says, if you lived here, you'd be home now. Right. I that think that I, I've seen that slogan still used in some places. Um, and so California is booming. What happens to the studios at that time? Because something like Culver City, it was that Culver City was all Columbia Pictures in the, or what was what MGM. 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 Oh, MGM's a tower now. MGM's a bunch of offices and a tower in, in, in Century City at this point. You're right. Century City was all MGM and. You yeah. know, and everything Culver, over the Culver hill City. was in the, was, was, uh, Culver City. It was MGM. And, and, you, you and right. by you, the way, Zelnick, uh, uh, you know, um, they had another studio there as well, which is now LAD. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you've got, so, and then you had Universal City. Universal City was but it was way away. It was right. in the valley. It was in the valley <laughs> where I live. And Warner Brothers was right there in the middle of all of it. Warner Brothers was in Hollywood. No, one of, no one is, wasn't in Hollywood. I, I, guess, I guess Disney did move his studio from Hyperion. He built that studio in the 40s. He built the, after the success of Snow White, he built the... In Burbank. In Burbank, yeah. where they are now. And, and Warner's was five minutes away. Five minutes. And they still are. Yeah. But the land was cheap. And when you do a studio and you're building big sound stages, uh, cheap land was a major issue. The Warner family built that area now. It was called, was when I left anyway, was Warner Ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not center. a ranch anymore. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, but every studio had ranches. Uh, Columbia had theirs out, and the Lone Ranger Ranch was was Columbia Pictures, mm-hmm. and you could do pictures cheaply. There was no there were no power lines to be seen because there was nobody out there. Mm-hmm. That's why Chinatown is so real. You know, the film, the film, yeah. Um, you, there is that scene in Chinatown where Jake goes over the hill, and then he's just in those orange groves, and yeah. he realizes what the, I don't know, geeks gave us, you, you probably should be have seen Chinatown by now, but um, he has, the, it, there's, the reservoir is still there, obviously, where he gets his, his nose slit, and then there's that amazing scene where he's in the valley, and it's just orange groves, and someone like me who moved to Los Angeles in 2003, no, none of that is there anymore. <laughs> Houses out there cost between eight and eleven thousand dollars. Eight thousand, eighty-four hundred. Eleven thousand was a good-sized house. And that was in the forties. Forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people were using their GI bills to come back. They were, and there were. Remember, there were very few highway and um, freeways. I said they were all residential streets. Mm-hmm. So you hadn't cut through like the the four hundred five, et cetera. Right. You were telling me earlier today that um, you were on the five freeway the day before it opened. <laughs> it's an interesting story. I was with a director named Howard Hawks. Of course. Who had just come back from, at the, from Europe, and he had bought one of the first gullwing SLs around. Now, explain for the Geekscapers who Howard Hawks, what are some of his biggest movies? Because he's a legend. I let you do that. No, he, don't put me on the spot. Howard but, Hawks is... The Big Sleep. Yeah, The Big Sleep. He was one of the noir directors. Yeah, he was, one of the, he was a legend in his own yeah. way. But anyway, we sit in his silver gullwing with the navy blue leather interior, by the way. And we pull up in front of the 405, which is about to open the next day. Mm-hmm. And you, um, he says, get the, goddamn, get the goddamn thing out of the way. We're going to take the car. And I, I so we open the doors. And get, I, the, get the goddamn thing out of the way? What does that mean? It was blocked to go oh. into the freeway. So, okay. so they had, I forget what they were, but oh, they Oh, well, they, they put a barricade up. Barricades. <laughs> and, yeah. and, the, and the freeway is completely empty. No, but it wasn't open. Right. And I hear this thrum, 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 thrum. 
And I look to the right, and there's a, there's a chip sitting there in his motorcycle with his arms crossed. A chip. Highway Patrol. Highway Patrol. Yeah. And uh, he's watching us. <laughs> and um, he calls out to Hawks, what is this thing called? He says, it's called a Mercedes 2SL. He said, what'll it do? He says, well, I was about to find out till you showed up. <laughs> and the cop sat there for about 30 seconds. He said, tell you what, you have three minutes of total immunity. Go ahead. So I moved the barricade, whatever it was. Yeah. We get in, we drop the doors, and we're doing 130 miles an hour on this empty freeway. <laughs> and late, the sun is setting, so we still have plenty of light. He turns around, comes back to the same exit. Cop is sitting there. And uh, he says to Hawks, what do you think? He says, it's fantastic. He's good. Now get your ass out of here and never do it again. <laughs> but with an average speed of 12 miles an hour on the 405 now, I think this is a story from ancient history. 130 miles. <laughs> yeah. So how did you, what year was this? This is in the 50s. In the 50s, yeah. Well, and so you got into the film industry pretty, like, in the 50s. As, a, as a teenager. Yeah, I was 52. <clears throat> yeah, I was a young writer. Put myself through school writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, money was tight. Money was tight and not well paid. I wrote, I remember writing for a very famous columnist who had a five day a week strip in the network newspapers Mm -hmm. all over the country and he needed a holiday and I got paid $25 a column for the time he was off on holiday to write his column in his style, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was thrilled to get the money. And so... You're, and that was a weekly column. Week, so you're making twenty five. He did dailies and weeklies. Yeah. Okay. And what? And so you're, you're just writing whatever you can. You're writing scripts. You're writing short stories. You're writing columns. You're, you're, how long were you piecing that together before you started working? What, what brought you into a studio when you started working into a studio? I never was. I was always an independent. You're always independent. Country, yeah. And people were different then. Um, I've told you the story of Forrest Ackerman. They, Forey Ackerman and Geekscape is you should know Forey Ackerman because he created uh, one of the I mean the greatest monster magazine of all time. So yeah, Forey's birthdays took three days. And Uncle Forey is what we all call him. Uncle oh. Forey is he was a big hero for people like Guillermo del Toro and a lot of the, Peter Jackson and those guys because they all the, the name of the magazine was Famous Monsters of Screenland yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah and, and they were all they all subscribed to them. Forey had a little are you, house. Are you very, wrestling with your shirt? Yeah, he, no, I'm finished. <laughs> okay, you I think you're good. I think I think. Let me just clean up your mic real quick. I'm gonna pinch that necklace too while I'm at it. Oh, more gooder. Yeah, more gooder. It's getting better. Okay, there we so, go. You like okay, that? Yeah, yeah. So Forey Ackerman. Forey had a little house near uh-huh. Alexander Hamilton High School near Robertson Boulevard. And uh, I was introduced to him because I was a young, starving writer. And um, he was very nice to me. But the, he chatted for a few minutes. I gave him one of my scripts that I'd written to see whether he would want to represent me. I had to go to the bathroom. And Forey wasn't just a magazine publisher. No, he wasn't anything. He was, just, he was just a famous man who collected. He represented, however, the who's who of science fiction in mm-hmm. those days. And, and this is in the 50s? In the 50s. 55, okay. maybe 56 or 7. Okay, so, right the people, so people who would later, I mean, would somebody like um, uh, Richard Matheson be read by him? He, he wrote uh, Man Legend and he, he wrote for, for yeah, the Matheson, Twilight Zone. Matheson was a, was a wonderful writer. Right. Um, but generally speaking, the legends were, you know, like Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. He represented them. And he wasn't making a lot of money, but then neither was Ray Bradbury. Um, so I had to go to the bathroom, and I said, where is it? He says, down the hall, turn to the left. And it was something in the way he said it. So I go down the hall, turn to the left, and he hears a scream. <laughs> and 
and he starts to laugh, and I realize it, the bathroom is to the left. He has the original creature from the Black Lagoon, eight feet tall, standing in the end of a darkened hallway. <laughs> the natural response as you walk into it is to, right? And that's how I got accepted into his work. World, but he had three days of birthdays the day before, the day of the birthday, and the day after. Uh-huh. And you never knew who you'd run into to come to say happy birthday to him. But he was a very modest man and he was a very gentle man. And he just was absolutely in love with horror films and science fiction. And he was like one of the original Geekscape. <laughs> like, like yeah. we're, we're oh, kind of yeah. carrying his, oh, yeah. carrying on in his honor because that we, that's the stuff that you just described, the stuff that excites us. Um, who were some of the people that you may have met at those? Parties. Oh, um, Bradbury was one. Yeah. Ray never drove, you know. So. I first met him in, when I was a kid in the early 1950s, sitting on an apple crate in his garage, and he autographed, and I still have, an original copy of the Martian Chronicles. Um, what were you doing in his garage? Well, that's where he wrote, on a typewriter. He wrote in his garage. How did you end up in that garage? Um, I was invited to meet him, you know, because the Martian Chronicles blew me away. And rereading them again, as I did last year, um, a stunning piece of work, way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and he was very nice. Uh, I, over the years, I never became friends, but he, I knew him, and I took him home on more than one occasion because he wasn't driving a car. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 50s was not about pomposity or importance or, you know, they were really nice, you know. But the other the major thing that happens in the 50s is you start to get the advent of television. Yeah. And television starts taking apart some of the old Hollywood. Absolutely. And you still had remnants of this old Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Well, that was parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, an actor of reputation never admitted that they would do television. Right. But... Um, when money got tight and all they had was their, their fame and they needed to keep their own... Like the Betty Davis story mm-hmm. you've been told before. But, uh, tell me the Betty Davis story. There's a couple stories that you've told me. That, <laughs> but At 40, you can't remember these? And they, Listen, I, I, I want you to reiterate them for the Geekscapists. For the Geeks, God. I'm a young man working at Columbia Pictures in, in, um, at the Screen Gems division at that time. And what year is this? 56, 57. Okay. And Betty Davis gets hired to do a pilot, a guest star in a pilot. And the front office tells me they want this and this and this from her. So I go on to the stage, and she's well past her prime. And I said, Miss Davis, she says, not now, kid, I'm doing so-and-so. I get a buzz, you know, from the front office, get this data from her. I go back, I say, Miss Davis. You just have to ask her a question. Pardon? Yeah, you just have to ask her a question. I have a question and ask her to do something. I forget what it was. But anyway... She looks at me and she says in the top of her Betty Davis voice, listen, you little shit, get out of my face, and when I'm ready, I'll let you know. And I went, yes, but David, and I went off to the corner of the stage and cowered, literally, <laughs> until they were finished shooting. They finished early, and about 2, 2, 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. Davis looks around and yells out in the same tone of voice, where's the little shit? <laughs> and I said, here, Miss Davis. And she says, come here, kid. Listen, he says, the front office always wants something for you to do that they don't pay you for. I says, I just did what they paid me for. Now, what would you like me to do for you? Mm-hmm. She was very nice at that point. But I will never forget the whole stage heard, where is the little shit? <laughs> did you get a nickname? But most of the, old, the old-timers had bellowed out. It was a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bogarts of the world had spent 30 years in the business by then. Mm-hmm. You know? Did you ever meet Bogart? Oh, yeah. I, spent, I, I, spent, I remember an afternoon I spent with him. He had just come back from doing The African Queen. It's a great and movie. By the way, he said, oh, yeah, 
And he had said he and, and John were Houston were the only ones who didn't get sick on the trip. Katie Hepburn got terribly ill. So Katherine Hepburn, and she's great in that movie. And that's, that's like one of those movies that they show you in film school. But, but did, and you met John Houston? No, not Houston. No, I mean, he was always in Mexico, I guess. Um, were they, were they, were, was it because they were drinking on set? They, well, you remember the scene where he wakes, he comes out of his hangover and he sees all the bottles of Gilby's gin yeah. flowing? That was real. That was them. They, were, they so drank no nothing. art direction. He said he and, he and John Houston drank nothing but gin from the time they left London to the time they got back, I want to say something like six weeks or six months later. But Katie and the others on the, didn't drink. They got desperately ill. They got dysentery and everything else. He was healthy. As, he and Houston were healthy. Because they were all drinking water. They were drinking water, purified, <laughs> but it's not purified enough. <laughs> And what they were, were drinking they? Gilby's gin. Did they actually shoot that in South In Where would they shoot that? In South in America? Africa. And they no, shot it in, no, in Africa? In Africa, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you met Bogart. Yeah. Um, he had brought back with the, the little African harp, I think what they call them now, with a little metal thing. Uh-huh. And yeah. he brought, and I was playing with it. And, and I'm not paying attention to him. I'm playing with this little thing. And I suddenly hear... in your office or something? No, or, no yeah. it's in the home. It's in the living yeah. room. And I hear a voice say, Put it down, kid. And, and I didn't hear Bogart. I heard, I heard Sam Spade. Yeah. I heard Casablanca. I heard everybody. I didn't hear the actor. I heard the, the characters. Pers- characters. And I put it down like I was shot. Because he's like, uh, <laughs> put it down, kid. Put it down, kid. That was not a request, by the way. That was an order. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the old timers were, were quite nice and polite. Some of them, oh, some of them were very different. But I didn't, I see, I began writing a column for a thing called the International Cinematographer Magazine every month, which gave me contact with the, the great cinematographers. Of the, and then sometimes they'd say, you ought to meet so-and-so, and I would meet one of the stars that they wanted me to be introduced to. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting era. They were gracious, amazingly gracious, you know. I mean, it was a different era. Um, Ray Bolger taught me a couple of dance steps. Um, Etc. That kind of thing. I sat with um, so many people. I was at the age. I was a young man between eighteen and twenty-five when these old stars were dying and leaving, mm-hmm. and so they were very nice to this young punk kid who was writing a, a column. They had no reason to be. They had nothing to gain from me. Did you have? A, did anybody turn into a, who mentored you? And it's hard when you're independent. I understand yeah. for myself when you're doing independent work. There's a lack of consistency. There's a lack of you don't you don't go and punch a clock every day, no, and you're no. constantly hustling. Did any? How did you get through those periods? And like, what was the story? You write a huge amount of stuff, mm-hmm. and it gets thrown back at you. Of course. Um, my later agent was the man who used to write some of the Astaire Rogers films, a man mm-hmm. named Irwin Gelsey. But generally speaking, there was so much demand, and there were companies like Warner Brothers. One is. In the late 50s, seven out of the ten shows on the air, remember, the only three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, seven of the ten were westerns, and I worked on six of those different ones. Right. Okay? When they went on writer's strike, everybody was paralyzed except Warner Brothers. They took all the old scripts, which they owned, made them detective stories, and came out with shows like 77 Sunset Strip. You know? Same plot. Yeah. Just move it up into... It's a... In those westerns were like the Bonanzas and the Tales Rife, of West Fargo, Have Gun Will Travel. Have Gun right. Will Travel. Yeah. 
yeah. and you used to write for all those different and get rejected an awful lot. <laughs> That's just the way it goes, and I don't think this is any different. We've had, you know, when when TV exploded, they needed a lot of content back then, and now TV is going through this period with the Netflix and the Amazons and the streaming services where there's a ton of demand for content, and a lot of the content's not great. They don't watch the old, they don't watch the old <clears throat> film structure. Um, mm-hmm. There was a period of time where um, a writer was respected, not at Warner Brothers, but at other studios. <laughs> Sounds like Warner Brothers, they were just trying to fill as much content as possible in, in case another strike happened, which maybe they, they helped cause that strike because of their practices. But they were always a tight men with a buck, mm-hmm. very tough. Their writers used to jump over the... Sometimes they'd park their car against the back fence because they would check when they checked in and out, and they'd go over the back fence and go into the writer's building. But Warner used to have somebody keep an eye out for them because they didn't come in on time. He had them go in on time and check it out. Explain that again to me. So you had to just clock in at a certain time. You had to clock in and clock out. Yeah, and these are creative people. Yeah. That's the very famous story about the ending of Casablanca where where they called and said, so does she go off with Rick or does she go off, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the Mankiewicz brothers said, damned if we know. And they said, well, you better know it and know it quickly because we're shooting Tuesday. And they sat down and that's how the ending, uh, because literally they had no ending for the film. <coughs> and the writers had to come in and sit down and show up. And it was like you were working in a factory. Mm-hmm. Not the same thing, not the same world. Um, good writers were wonderful and witty and most many of them were major drunks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get great directors like Billy Wilder who had a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> well, he's a genius. Another person that comes out of the noir era, like he's just a complete genius. Yeah, he was... I used to collect the end of movies, the last lines of films, because it was fun. And what's the last line of Devil and Um, One of, I mean, is that is arguably Billy Wilder's best movie? No, I would say Summer Like It Hot. Summer Like It Hot, I you like, like that one better? What's the last line of Summer Like It Hot? Oh, I, I've watched Devil and Demony a ton more. Nobody's perfect. Like yeah. <laughs> okay. The last line of um, Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine, the last line mm-hmm. of, yeah, right, is shut up and deal. Now, what's the last line of Double Indemnity? It will, it, it's it, Edward it, G. Robinson's it, yep. last line. He's dying. He's bleeding. He's dying. I thought something. the last line was Keyes' last line. His, his employer, who I think they haul him away. Or is, right. it, or is it him on the recording? Yeah. Oh, he's he's doing yes. He's, he's doing, doing his recording. He's doing recording. Then he asked he asked the Edward G. Robinson character <clears throat> to give him a head start, and he head start. You won't make it to the you won't make it to the door. Yeah. Anyway, he gives him a cigarette. He slumps against the door frame. There is one more line. Yep. And it was Edward it was Edward G. Robinson's line. I can't remember. By the way, Mister Robinson was an interesting man. During the war, he contributed a lot of his salary secretly to Jewish. Um, uh, organizations in Europe to save their lives. Wow. Yeah. His real name was Emmanuel, remember? Emmanuel mm-hmm. Rosenberg. And he ran almost his own Schindler's List. He was wonderful. Yeah. He was a very honorable man in many ways. Um, what is the last line now? I, I, I can't. Um, I won't be able to, to, to um, produce it here. Um. Um, so what were some of the stories that, you know, looking back, you, you think to yourself, um, you know, this person was, you got to know them in a way that other people never really got to know them. Like, who were the, like, again, going back to, like, an idea that maybe you had a, some mentorship or somebody who helped guide you through all that time. You know, a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. But 
mentoring? I don't think so. It, yeah, and it's something that when I think about it as well, I there's really nobody in Los Angeles who's taken me under their wing ever in 15 years. If you're a writer, you will get an older writer to give you some help and, and edit. Mm-hmm. Um, the film that um, I met, the great composer David Raxson, mm-hmm. The Bad and the Beautiful, um, is about editing and ri- learning to write a book versus writing a film. Mm-hmm. And um, we always overwrote. And then you'd get some grizzled old pro who'd say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the camera. You're going to look to the left. We're going to hold for a long shot. The audience is going to see what they want to see. And 15 pages disappears. Yeah, and that's kind of... But that's not bad advice. Cause no. It, you really... It, it should be on the screen, not on the page. Like a lot of that stuff is should be conveyed in images, not necessarily in much Absolutely. Of blah 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 blah. Yeah, but you have to have an actor that you trusted. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Probably the man who never missed his shot was Spencer Tracy. Tracy always knew his stuff. Bogart always knew his stuff. I was with there one day when she came up to see him. Uh, one of the big fan magazines. I want to say Modern Screen. Okay. Fritting away. Oh, Mr. Bogart, you know, you're so wonderful. What do you think you owe your fans? And Bogart, who hated these kind of people anyway. He's an interviewer. Yeah, yeah, and he looked at her and he said, know your line, show up on time, know your lines and get the hell out of there. <laughs> and he turned around and walked away from her. That's it. That was the whole interview. <laughs> yeah. But Spencer Tracy always knew his lines, knew what he's doing, even when he's, even when he's drinking. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking. And Not drugs, drinking. Right. And when did the, like, we were talking earlier about the coke, like when it when things got from the sixties down, well in the in the fifties TV explodes, uh, as it's doing now, and then going to the sixties, a lot of those studios started really having trouble, and that's when you start seeing those studios getting sold off and all this stuff. The real estate market they can't compete. Yes. All these studios start getting sold off for housing development and other things. And by the end of six, of uh, by the near the end of the sixties, after something like Cleopatra, you have Fox Studios having major problems, and it really kind of set the stage for all those renegade movies like uh, I guess we, you'd say um, Bonnie and Clyde was in there or um, Easy Rider all that stuff was kind of set up by the failure of a studio system in the, by the late 60s but the studios owned their stars you, people don't understand when you were under contract in those days you literally were an employee no different than going to work in a factory. Right. You had done what you were told to do, when you were told to do it. If you didn't like it, you, they just cut your salary like off. Like the Warner Brothers story of writers sneaking into work. <laughs> well, yeah. Betty Davis was off, off salary for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Cagney had to buy his contract back out. Uh, you were an employee, and if you wanted to stop working there or go to do something else, you bought your way out. Now... It was not uncommon because if you were Shirley Temple and 20th Century Fox had you and you were the biggest kid star in the business, biggest star in the business, and they wanted to use you at this thing they were going to do at MGM called The Wizard of Oz, okay? Fox absolutely refused no matter what they offered them. We're not going to let her be in any film other than a Fox film. And she almost had the Dorothy part in Wizard of Oz? Yeah, that's what they wrote. They wrote it with her in mind. They wrote Wizard of Oz for Shirley Temple. I'd never heard of that story. That's incredible. You want a Wizard of Oz story? Yeah. Frank Morgan, who was under contract for years at Fox, always playing wonderful, lovable characters. So he's signed to play the Wizard for the couple of scenes where they do this. And um, the Wizard is kind of a fraud and a little shabby, but he's a good man. So they send him over to the wardrobe building, which is huge, and they can't find a coat for him that looks suitably right and shabby. Frank says, look, can I look around? They said, sure, you know. 
So he goes downtown Los Angeles to Goodwill stores, and he's rummaging through the old clothing at Goodwill, and he finds a, a gray coat, it's exactly right for the wizard, and he pays like three or five dollars for it, and puts it on, it's perfect. He goes back, shows it to the director, they said, that's great, let's shoot. Frank reaches in his pocket, in the inside coat pocket of this jacket, and pulls out a little piece of paper. It says, property of L. Frank Baum. Wow. The author of The Wizard of Oz. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 I love stories like this, because <laughs> you can't make them up. <clears throat> so, in that, I mean, obviously, Wizard of Oz was before your, your time, but a, there was a lot of... 1939. Those, there were 1939, but there's a residual amount of people who still have those stories, who were there when those stories happened. Yeah. And as you start to see things happen from the 50s into the 60s, um, what was that transition like? Because then you start seeing the drugs come in, and then there's a whole political shift in California especially. Again, remember, <clears throat> the studios were without, almost without exception created by European-born impoverished Jews. Mm -hmm. There's a story about Sam Goldwyn, whose real name was Shmuel Goldfleisch. <laughs> Shmuel Goldfleisch who had heard that they were sending people back to Europe if they didn't have the right papers. He got off the boat in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and walked to New York. Wow. They, mm -hmm. These men created, there's a wonderful book called The, the Jews Who Created Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, these men had no education and no culture per se, and yet they produced the kind of films you talk about. MGM was not a Jewish studio, although Louis Mayer was, mm -hmm. But the Christian ethic of being good to your family, having a happy ending, treating uh, all as well, they, these guys created that. I don't know how or why, but they did. But when you started getting into the business, you also started having things post-World War II, like the Hayes Code, come in. World, no, Hayes Code was, was in the 1930s. No, 1930s. Uh, you started to see things post-World War That's right. I'm sorry about yeah, that. That's all right. Strike that one. Hayes made the difference. Hayes uh, made the difference. He was not a nice man. No, he sounds and like a piece was, of trash. Basically, yeah, but it basically was the Catholic Church saying, we, don't, like, we, do, we do this at home, but we don't want it on the screen. Right, so the noir films all had to be creative to yeah, get around the Hayes exactly. Code, which is where the history gets in. So in yeah. the 40s, when you started seeing movies like Double Indemnity, um, it, or you started seeing all those... Murder, My Sweet, Dick Murder Powell. My Sweet. Dick Powell was the, one of the biggest stars in the 30s, doing mm -hmm. all the MGM... Uh, the, sorry, the 20... Doing all the Warner Brothers with mm -hmm. Ruby Keeler and the others. Sure. And they, one after the other, one after the other, year after year after year, and Dick got tired of that. And so in 1949, I think it was, he did the first Raymond Chandler he, he wow. played, okay? And he did Murder, My Sweet. And we remember those, those movies as being violent, but when you look at them, they're so creatively shot. Yeah. And the influx of all those Europeans coming in to f f shoot those movies, there's almost experimental sequences in those films. Yes, there To are. get around the Hayes Code. Exactly. Yeah. The Hayes Codes were very strict. If you had a husband and wife in bed, one of the two of them had to have both feet on the ground. Hmm. They could sit on the edge of the bed. So when you see the old and wonderful um, Mr. and Mrs., you know, right? You know what I'm about to say? Nick and Nora? Okay. okay. The thin man, they always slept in separate beds, even though they were obviously in love and all the banter was about that, separate. And when he wanted to sit with her, he had to sit with his feet. Not one, both on the ground. That was Hayes. Well, and when did that stuff start to erode? In the 50s? No, no, 30s. The, the Hayes Code started to erode. When did it start to... It began to erode with films like <clears throat> The Moon is Blue, 20th Century Fox <clears throat> with Maggie McNamara. Um, and it began 
to have real trouble at the last line. What's the last line of Gone with the Wind? Oh, Gable God. walks away. You and throw it to me. His last line is very famous because the last line was, frankly, my yeah, dear. I don't give a damn. I don't give a yeah. damn. Yeah. And the word damn, they went to the Hayes office. They had to fight that thing for rating. Over the word damn. Damn. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Yeah. And so now you have a bunch of gangster films in the 40s, and then those turn into westerns in the 50s? Some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The westerns were very clear. Um, well, you had those things like Shane that were just clear morality. And the man the lived the here in Santa Fe who wrote Shane. Really? Way. Yeah. You always Shane, had the bad guy in black, the good guy in white. Jack Palance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shane happens to be a very tight, very good picture. Mm-hmm. And Gene Arthur came out of, out of retirement to do that film. Wow. A fine, fine film. Um, and what's the last line of Shane? Don't go, Shane. With the little kids, you calling to Shane? That's right. Yeah. And Brandon to Wilder, what, is it? He, what does he call out? Oh. Shane. Come back, Shane. Come back, Shane. Mama needs you. And you know Shane's need, dead. Yeah. <laughs> <And> spoiler. <laughs> I mean, Shane's been shot, and he's yeah, walking he's, away. He's riding away. Yeah, he's riding away. I think Shane maybe gets another 20 minutes, and then they find Shane. Yeah. That, but it was well done, beautifully photographed, mm-hmm. and photographed in widescreen, which had just come in at the time. And there's also, in the 50s, you start to see all those movies, and they, I guess there's some science fiction movies. You start Day to the Earth Stood Still? Day the Earth Stood Still. That was written specifically for Michael Rennie, by the way, wow. based on a script by Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, I think Richard Matheson, I'm Legend, wrote the best horror novel of all time. And obviously he then goes on to write for things like Twilight Zone and things like that. But um, what about bringing in some of the foreign films? Like, like were there foreign films in the 50s, 60s? Were you able to go to the cinema and watch Kurosawa movies or Godzilla movies? Absolutely. Or the theater European, would the be A theater would have 99 to 200 seats. Little mm-hmm. theaters. Mm-hmm. Because that's the kind of revenue they could afford. And you'd watch the French New Wave movies come in, and you start to see that influence not until the 60s when things started to break down right. in the studio system. Right. Were the studios pretty resistant to that kind of art? Very. Mm-hmm. You've got to remember, these were old men by this time who'd made a lot of money mm-hmm. and were very rigid and fixed in their way. A lot of the MGM stuff was made in the 50s was the 1930s movies in, in look and feel and style. Uh, they misread that the, the peop- these men had come home from the war and seen horrible things, and they wanted a different kind of film. And they didn't want treacly sweet. They right. wanted something with some teeth in it. And I think that the, the French, uh, the Italian neorealist movement is the same kind of way, where you had the, the red telephone movies in Italy that were supposed to be about the happy wedding and the bride, and they were almost like soap operas. And then in the middle of Rome, open city, you've got the, the bride gets shot. And then the second half of that movie is like a, a resistance film. Exactly. But you it's, a bunch of never... kids, it's a bunch of kids running around with like IEDs and stuff, but like with bombs in their hands. But it was a much more cynical world. Italy in the, in the early 50s after the war um, was pretty devastated. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had a great film. Um, one of the great films, of course, is Roman Holiday. Mm-hmm. It was 53. Uh-huh. Jonathan, it occurred to me... Mm-hmm. That at age almost 87, there's nobody left to be offended. No. They're all dead and gone. So I can mention some things that are different. Many years ago, I knew one of the big eight accounting firms in those days, the big eight, who audited the sale of Warner Brothers to Seven Arts by a man also named Ross, whom I had, Steve Ross, I had no connection, just happened to have the same last name. And I was having dinner with the chief auditor, 
who'd gone over the books of Warner's and the assets, and said, you know, we're used to seeing companies with double books. But he said, these people had triple books. Wow. So you never knew the real cost of anything if you had a profit sharing. You, you never got it right. People were still getting in trouble with that. I mean, still Fox today. Television got in trouble with that over that show Bones because they were, the profit people who were supposed to be in the profit share, they were getting the wrong ratings numbers. And they got taken to court and really slapped about that stuff. And that happened within the last year. It's an old and honored tradition. What can I tell you? But they buried so much of the cost of these things. I mentioned to you the Dukes of Hazard having a Coke budget at one point of 50 grand a week, give or take. Yeah, and so once you start getting into the 70s, into the 80s, you, like uh, during Vietnam, the, the drugs start coming into Hollywood. Is that true? No, they were or, well in. They, they were well in they by the, well in. the 60s. The era I'm speaking of, drugs were not common. In um, the 50s. In the 50s right. and the 40s. But people were drunks. Drunks was uh, <laughs> understandable. Mm-hmm. So it, it really was different. Um, it, it got very scary. And it was not the same world. In the 60s, when the drugs came in. Yeah. But these men who owned and ran the studios were tired. Uh, The next generation coming up wanted to do different things. Um, I mean, I think about some of the... I talked about some of my old stuff that I wrote. A a lady by the name of Margaret Mitchell wrote a book called Gone with the Wind, and it was declined 32 times. And on the 33rd try, a publisher said, I'll take it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know the story of, of um, The Music Man? No. Meredith Wilson wrote the script. With, uh, I'm trying to think who he had in mind. I want to say Danny Cave, but I'm not sure. But he, uh, he wrote it, and he was turned down. He did 32 auditions. Everybody turned him down. Everybody you could think of in Hollywood from Dick Van Dyke turned him down. One day, after 32 tries, up his driveway comes a guy named Robert Preston, wow. who was, had been playing B-movie heavies. Period. Yeah. They always said he knew every line of his film. He knew exactly. He never made a mistake. He was totally professional. And he said, I want to try out for this. <laughs> and as we like to say in Hollywood, the rest is history. But you get stories like that from, I mean, John Wayne was a stuntman before stagecoach. And stories like that. Well, he was a, he was a B guy. He, that's why he never went into the military. Right. He'd also hurt his back. But he was making money at Republic Pictures, grinding these things out. And we're talking a five-day shoot, a seven-day shoot. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, he was not a major star. He was reliable, and he knew his lines. Stagecoach made everything different. That was 1939, as I recall. Well, that shot in stage... I always think of that shot in Stagecoach where you have the Indians chasing them up the hill, and then the blam, 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 the Indians get shot, and the, the, the people getting chased looked up, and there he is. <laughs> like this, there's like the sun glow behind him. It's that just is like probably a, the greatest iconic single Western photograph yeah. as such. It's incredible. Yeah, it and, is. But you, saw, you start to see that in Peckinpah movies, which means that you start to see them in John Woo films. And then you start to see them in Tarantino movies. That shot has turned into so many other filmmakers using that shot and developing it through the decades. Woo has such a different orientation of visual joy. I mean, John Woo? Yeah. Well, there was a reporter who introduced John Ford, who inter, inter, sorry, interviewed John Ford mm-hmm. and said, Mr. Ford, I've seen your film so many times. Why didn't the Indians just shoot the horses? Mm-hmm. And they would have been trapped there on the open area. And Ford looked at the reporter and said, because you dumbass. There'd be no movie. <laughs> Simple, obvious things you and I think about. Yeah, yeah, but then you don't get that sequence of John Wayne jumping the horses. Stunt doubles. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the sixties, when when what do you think brought cocaine into the? Industry? I don't know. I don't One know. day it was just there. The mob was the mob was in Hollywood, but they stayed. The mob stayed away. There was drugs. It was not for their game booze, prostitution. The numbers. mob was in the booze. Yeah, I mean, the mob the mob financed Columbia Pictures. Mm-hmm. Okay, and interesting story. One of the most profitable units of Columbia Pictures is the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. The guys never got the real salaries they deserved because Cohen had threatened to bring in the mob, beat them up, and these guys were scared. The Mickey Cohen guy? No, Mickey. No, this is Cohen who ran Columbia Pictures. And, I mean, it was just, you could get girls and you had big profits. You could bury things in it. You could have friends put to work. I have a friend's daughter. I wanted to put her in a movie sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was very useful for the mob. But it wasn't drugs. Mm -hmm. It was booze. In the, I mean, in you started talking about the different, the separate books, two books, three, three books, books, three books, <laughs> in some cases, uh, and shows actually had cocaine budgets on them. No, you, you mean, had a budget. You, 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 you had set, you had set problems. Right. You had production problems, right. which we had to cover. That's what you did. Yeah, you'd hide it. <clears throat> you'd hide it in the ancillary budgets. Right, right. Contingency budgets. And I mean, that's quite the contingency. Is that our? Well, it's called other things. Right. Um, at that point, are you st- what, what are you doing uh, going into the 60s and the, and the 70s? What's Ronald doing for I was writing, but I'd also by then moved into financial, mm-hmm. in the financial world and never, never looked back. Mm-hmm. But we, we are speaking of a different mindset, and you can't reproduce it. You can't fake it. You can't reproduce it. How so? The, the global and United States mindset and culture, what we believed in, how we believed the world to be, Okay, um, was very different, and it was promoted in in these films in Hollywood in the sixties, fifties, sixties, seventies. Then we got in some great films in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean you're talking about Chinatown, you're talking about The, the Godfather, Godfather yeah. right? A different kind of film, and in the old days the studios would allow it. Remember, at the time we're talking about this period of Warner Brothers, Sherry, I forgot her last name was the first woman chief of a studio, per se. It was all run by old white men. And they wanted movies made a certain way. And that didn't start breaking down until the late 60s. <clears throat> and the stock got getting bought by other people. Mm-hmm. If you would look, see photographs of the old MGM studios, they had a huge sign above the studio in Culver City. And it said, Metro Golden Mayor. And underneath it said, Controlled by Lowe's, Inc. Yeah, and you, I mean, you do see... Time Warner. Time Warner is now an AT and T company, and you obviously you've got uh, every studio is now owned by some major. Uh, I think you're okay. Okay, you got something. We'll find it later. No, 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 no. You're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> Sorry, Geeks gave us. He adjusted his uh, his microphone, and we were good. Don't touch the microphone, Ron. <laughs> okay. Um, so. Yeah, no, I mean, we still have corporations owning the studios in major ways. The most magnificent example of growth in a frightening way is the Disney empire. Yeah, this Fox merger, I don't think you're a fan of this, and I know that I'm not a fan of it either. It, it, it seems like it, it, it's a bad idea to consolidate that much, especially if you're a union employee. Now you look up and... Forty percent of your industry is run by one corporation. Like, how do you even, how do you even negotiate with that entity? It's pretty know, scary. 
I mean, you have radio, you have television, you have newspapers, you have films, you have backlogs you can resell. No one has ever touched Disney for the magnificence of the merchandising. Mm-hmm. Um, the Disney parks are unbelievable. I talked to an old Disney pro not long ago, and I asked him, I said, if you have a storm in, in Orlando and you can't open the park, I said, what do you think you lose a day? He said, well, there's forty to 45,000 employees. He says, probably 10, 12 million a day. Every day we can't open. Well, a film like Titanic, a film like, um, oh, any one of those John Cameron. Uh, James Cameron. James movies? Cameron yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Titanic made as much money as the entire film industry grossed in 40, 1948. Just that one film. He has a billion dollar budget to do all of the, the series that he's doing. The new Avatar movies. And I, I saw the fourth toy, toy Story movie. I loved it. I thought the fourth Toy Story movie was really good. You love those those Pixar films. Pixar was bought for next to nothing, but mm-hmm. you know, and Jobs Jobs was very smart. But there's a there's a great documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. The Waking Sleeping Beauty about almost the death of Disney Animation and how no. it was, how it was brought back by Eisner and Katzenberg and those guys. No, came in. It's a documentary called. It's about the late. It's about the the mid '80s when they were thinking about shuttering their animation department because. The Black Cauldron and those movies weren't making any money, and they were making money off of like the Herbie films. And the, in the eighties, they had started to make more live action stuff. And they said, "Why are we even doing animation anymore?" And there's a fantastic documentary on on the, on how they became how they went into the streak of having the Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast was an Oscar nominee, you know, Aladdin and the Lion King, obviously, and all those. And I think it's incredible. And then they took the Lion King and those films and they turned them into Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Where you, and in costume, you do not need a famous actor. Yeah. You need a capable singer or dancer, and you don't have to know who he is. Right. So the profit level is unbelievable. Yeah, and now they're doing live-action versions. Of yes, and now it's a finishing the loop, going backwards, yes. Yeah. So machines, which is what Disney is, is a machine, are unbelievable. They don't care whether it costs money, whether it's a budget that worked. You have a way to make it profitable. You and, just do. And so you got into the finance to, in area. Did you miss writing? No, um, yes and no, but not really. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in what I was doing, and I met a lot of very ethical people, which was nice. But the era I'm speaking of, and I was going to say this to you one day when we were visiting, every studio had its own flavor, like ice cream. Sure. You know, if you went on the if you went on to say Warner Brothers, you knew you were getting basically shoot 'em up, gangster, tough, nasty people. Great start, and occasionally a great film like All About Eve. Mm-hmm. If you went to Paramount, you could be getting historical pictures, etc. Universal was did B grade garbage in, in its early days. <laughs> well, you see their monster movies. Yeah, yeah. but when you, Abbott Costello, mm-hmm. uh, Francis, and the Mule, right? But when you walked on the lot at MGM, I'm not joking. Literally, the hair on the back of my arms would stand up because this was the studio that was turning out the great American musical at that era, and it was ending. Mm-hmm. But when you walked on a set. You went to MGM in those days, there were 3,000 people who showed up for work every day. Every day. Wow. Yeah. And the best talent in the business was under contract there, and they stayed, and it was family. So when you see a film like Singing in the Rain, it was absolutely based on the stories of the old MGM employees and the transition to sound. It wasn't a joke. It was a great film. Yeah. I love that sequence where they're trying to hide a microphone in a bush. Um, This... I'm still kind of in love with the idea of how the influx of 
what was going on in Europe and what was going on in Vietnam started to really shift American cinema in late sixties going into the seventies. Like that seems like the major that me that seemed like the biggest change in cinema. Oh yes. Oh yes. And again I was telling you I just saw Richard Donner's Superman movie again. That first thirty minutes of that is the best superhero anything on screen. I think that, that Mario Puzo script is perfect. You never who would hire the guy who wrote the wrote The Godfather, who would hire the equivalent Oscar nominated, Oscar winning screenwriter to write a superhero movie today? You wouldn't get that guy to write a superhero movie today. You'd you'd get a uh, you'd get a whole bunch of you'd get a panel of screenwriters to sit around and make up you know a bunch of ideas, and then the best idea would work, and you'd have this committee making a superhero movie. You get committees to make superhero movies today. You don't get Mario Puzo to write a super a superhero movie, and it it's incredible those first thirty minutes. For which is why Mr. Brando could get away with getting five million dollars for three days of work. <laughs> right. But when you do a film or you do a musical where you have costumes, um, you do not need the brilliance of a Robert Downey Jr. You just need somebody who's got good muscles. Well, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't Robert Downey Jr. when he did that first Iron Man movie. No. He was... But he did Chaplin. If you want to right. see great working, take a look at the shadings he brings to the Chaplin film. Richard Attenborough directed that one. And, it, and you can tell, it was a, that, but that was 1993 or 4. That was a while ago. And he had kind of a period between that and Iron Man. <laughs> he buried himself at other things, yes. Yeah, he, I remember when I moved to Los Angeles again in 2003, there was a 76 station uh, at the corner where Little Santa Monica becomes Burton. Do you know Yes. It? Yeah, and there's that 76 station. Robert Downey Jr. would sit there with his guitar on the corner. He just sat at the 76 station. This is 2003, 2004. He had nothing going on. Nothing. He was untouchable. And he would just play his guitar, hang out, and he'd be at the 76 station just whiling away the days because he had really kind of messed up. Wow. Yeah. And that was, that was less than two decades ago, Geekscape. It's like, I remember that really clearly. See, if a film today, Jim Carrey was getting $20 million a film. Mm-hmm. And, and a new one into the tank. But the point is, the salaries that were paid went to the individuals in the days of the studios you're speaking of. Um, they were just hired hands. Many of the stars at Warner Brothers' most famous films were getting 1200 1500 a week. Bogart finally got to five or 10000 a week. I've forgotten. Wow. It, but but high, most high pay. Because he did everything they told him to do. He'd make as many as six films a year if they had to. But you also did have United Artists and those artist-centered studios as well. I mean, but they were a result. Dick, that was Dick Powell, Charles Boyer, um, Mary Pickford. I remember that. Well, well, you, well, United Artists was Chaplin, Griffith, Pickford, yeah, and... That's the original. Yeah, those are the originals. And, um, and, and yes, it is... I, you know, one of my teachers at Columbia was Richard Brick, who was uh, one of the heads of UA in the 70s, and he was in charge of Heaven's Gate. <laughs> Heaven's Gate was his movie, the, the follow-up to the uh, to the to the Deer Hunter, and then it, and Heaven's Gate was the disaster that almost sank the studio. It's incredible, and I think I think the yeah, um, United Artists never really recovered from from Heaven's Gate. Never. I mean, look, Cleopatra I think ran thirty-two million dollars today. You'd it almost destroyed deer. Fox. It destroyed Fox. Yeah. They put everybody... But that was she, in the early 60s. That was the mid-60s. Yeah, but she was living in London in a triplex mm-hmm. at the most elegant hotel in London, yeah, working when she felt like... Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's a really interesting story, the one about Cleopatra in the mid-60s almost sinking Fox, because at that point, he gave the studio to his son to run. And his son was like 28 years old. 
But the son has made some great films. Right, the yeah. Sting, uh -huh. the one, right? Well done. Very tight. Zanuck was basically a Crackerjack story editor as well. Mm -hmm. and the his, young Zanuck? Yeah, no, the older Zanuck. Yeah. Yeah. And he made good films. Um, he was a son of a bitch, but he was very knowledgeable. And he, whereas Louis Mayer, mm -hmm. you know, no. He just was looking at the bottom line. Zucker, Adolf Zucker, you know. Yeah. No, different games. Mm -hmm. And you had stars who they took time to build who they were and the personality. So Gary Cooper started out being somewhat romantic because he was the son of a, the Supreme Court Justice of Montana. Oh, wow. But Cooper matured deeply, right? And fine, fine film. There's many, many films. But you don't have time to build character anymore. No, you're just throwing them in a costume <laughs> and you're getting up there. It, it is a lot. Of, I think we were talking earlier about 80% of the budget just being CGI. CGI. It's just computer graphics and we're, we're basically paying for um, just a giant, uh, we're paying for spectacle. And so that, that's what really troubled me watching those Mario Puzo scenes in, the, the, in Richard Donner's Superman was there's, n there's no big action sequences except maybe that really experimental destruction of Krypton scene at the beginning where it's, it's all tight shots and they're all canted angles and they're really weird. But for the most part, you get 30 minutes of just character. And it's not just Kal-El. You don't really get Kal-El, uh, you know, Superman until he's a teenager, 20, 15 minutes into the movie. It's his father, Jor-El, in the council and Zod, and he says, join me, Kal-El, or join me, Jor-El, and there's, there's very few lines, but the, every single line is important. And I found it really economic, and I could just hear the studio execs today screaming, "There's, it's got to start on an action sequence. It's got to start on a big spectacle. It's got to start on a huge origin moment. It's got to start on this huge disaster. But the Richard Donner Superman just kind of exists as a pretty cool sci-fi opening and then it turns into this beautiful the kansas stuff in there you can put those in paintings there's just yes. these amazing vistas in this the, the, far, the, the farms and the high school out there and it just looks it looks like an oscar caliber film you're not going to do that today with a superhero movie that's because you've trained the audience to expect action to expect something. So when you look at the, the ninth, was it 2009? There's so much more rewarding watching this. All right, this the Star movie. Trek, the first of the Star... Yes, uh, the motion picture. Yeah, motion Star Trek picture. motion picture. No, that was pretty dull with the tracking shots forever. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of the, the prequel. Um, it opens with action. Oh, you're talking about the J.J. The Abrams yeah. one. Yeah, it opens with action. Mm -hmm. And within minutes, you have the whole cast and everybody, 800 people leaving the ship, etc. That, that, that we have trained the audience to expect something going on before I know who you are. Mm -hmm. If I don't know who you are, why should I care that you're sick, you're old, you're poor, you're dying? Right. So you haven't got a hook into me yet. Therefore, I can watch it as a spectacle. But you still go to the movies. You still watch movies all the time. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Um, I'm looking to... I, I want to know who the person is. I want right. to know whether I should care... Do or should I care about you? I remember Buster Keaton telling me some advice when I was very young and I lost 90% of it. Holy crap. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite. Oh. Tell me the Buster the man was a Well, the man was a bona fide genius, but he was an alcoholic because the pressures were great. Mm. And he made one of the last of the silent films when sound was coming in, and he poured his own money, and I think it was a million dollars. Today, it could be 50, 60 million equivalent. Everything he had into a very good silent, but the world had passed him by. Mm -hmm. The world wanted to see people move and talk. Right. 
Right. And I remind you that one of the Warner Brothers, I want to say Jack, it was Harry, said, who the hell wants to see actors talk? So we have trained the audience response. Well, you and I are trained on computers. We know how to make that computer work, mm -hmm. but we have to do it the way the computer wants it. Right. Okay? So when you train an audience, it's used to action, it's used to noise, it's used to boom. Okay? Then go back and talk to me about your top 10 or 15 films you've ever seen. Well, I teach those film students, and when I ask them about their 10 movies, I get so much Christopher Nolan back, it drives me crazy. Nothing against Christopher Nolan, he made some good movies, but there's a lot of spectacle in those films, and I don't really know what I was watching in a lot of them. Right. Well, the shots are... I've checked myself a couple of times, and many of these films, it's a two-second shot. Mm -hmm. Boom, boom. The brain is not built to take into two seconds who you are and why, I, it's why I'm like interested. It's almost MTV at this point. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, think, I think MTV, had, and to a, another extent, Nickelodeon, that's kind of what I, I grew up in Nickelodeon, and I looked up sometime in, in high school and realized that Nickelodeon, in their short, Nickelodeon's children's programming, in, in their short segments had led me into enjoying music videos, and that music videos had led me into being able to sit through really short commercials. I trace that back to that FCC regulation where suddenly Reagan was like, hey, go ahead and sell advertising. Go ahead and advertise toys to kids, and it doesn't have to come in a commercial. You can have a 30-minute program. You can have a He-Man or a Transformer or Ninja Turtles. It doesn't have to come between educational program anymore. And all those restrictions in the 80s just got lifted. We get marched right into Nickelodeon, which marks our attention spans right into MTV, which marks our attention spans right into YouTube. And now we're all walking around staring at our phones. Did you... Okay, this is insane, and I saw this news story the other day, and I found it from a fairly reputable news source, like a CNN or one of those, that um, people are starting to grow these tiny horns in the back of their skulls as cat balances to their heads being down. So they're starting to see x-rays of kids and, and young adults who are starting to develop a like a bone spur, like a bone growth in the back of their, their, their skulls because their heads are forward, they're starting to develop a cat balance. And so basically there's a cavity in the back of the skull that's, that's created by constantly having your head down facing a phone for the, as you walk, as you sit at the table, as you do anything, your head's constantly down. And because of that, there's a cavity that's created right behind your head. And then now there's a bone that is starting to develop from the back of your skull that is giving you a little bit of a horn because of our dependency on just our addiction to the phones. May I support you in that? I saw an <laughs> item this week that said the average, they've just studied it, the average cell phone user looks at their phone 140 times a day. I don't deny that at all. I, would, I, I completely believe that. I think we're all kind of dopamine addicts. I've talked about it at length on the show. Uh, about our, our dangerous dependency on social media and how alone we are in a crowded room because of it. It's a really scary thing. And uh, if all we're doing is going to get these hits of spectacle and stuff like character is getting thrown out, we're not actually consuming anything of substance, which is sad to me when we watch these movies. Not to say Toy Story 4 wasn't incredible, because it was. <laughs> but those are also movies that take five years to make because that story pro process is so uh, intensive. So... And built on three preceding films. That's right. So um, you, in a sense, you knew who the characters were when you went to see Toy And I will not spoil it for you here, Geekscapists. Okay. I loved the movie. And, uh, and Ronald, you love Pixar movies, so please.
please go see that one. I mean, The Incredibles is witty and funny. That's incredible. Especially the opening where he's tapping on the mic. Yeah. Is thing on? I mean... Um, so, uh, there's a story uh, also about television addiction <laughs> that I wanted you to tell the Geekscapists. Um, and it's about when you went to visit your buddy out in Malibu. And you... Uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> the story is insane. Um, I don't know that I can do that. Yeah. Okay. He's gone now, but... He's uh, gone now. I don't think I can do that one. Okay. It was just about what was in the living room. I know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Geekscape. Yeah, but, the, but that, you see, that was in the late 80s, 90s. That was in the late 80s and 90s. It was pretty recent. Yeah. 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 He's gone, but you still can't tell them. I remember the yeah. black end of the music business was fueled by Coke. Will you say again what you just said? The black end of the music business, mm-hmm. the black artists, yeah. was fueled by cocaine. And they were in that they, world. And they kept, yeah, they kept, they kept them well. Plus, cheating them, these people had never, they had no history of, of earning these kinds of sums of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were so, an accountant for him? Or? No, no, I was managing. Managing, yeah. But, so they did not know. If they gave them enough, for example, this particular artist, I remember seeing one very, a major record he had done, a new album, and they had sold, like, I think at the time, 2622000 And we won't name them no, at all. No, no. But, and, and the, so his check was large because he had 16 cuts. He had written them. There was a publisher, et cetera. Um, when we made the deal with the recording studio, whose name I will not mention, no. um, the deal was very simple. He would con- they could continue to press all the records, which they, I think they did in Fort Wayne at Terre Haute, Indiana. But they had to buy all the album covers from him, from, mm. the record, from the production company I created for him. Suddenly he was getting checks for three million nine and four million six, you know. But you see, these men went, were being taken care of differently. So they thought, just so much money, they never thought twice about auditing to find out. And many of the managers were not ethical people, mm-hmm. okay? Because they knew these guys were druggies or stupid or whatever, they're ignorant, okay? Yeah. So they, they were playing with us. But the artist was so thrilled to get 2,600,000 albums sold at this kind of check coming in, and it was, checks were real. But they never told them they pressed other copies. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, and the, and the story that we were talking about was about the animal they had in their living room watching the television. And the kangaroo. <laughs> they had, he went over there and there was a kangaroo in the living room. <laughs> but the point is, you, and you made the point particularly interestingly to me, because everybody loves Toy Story, Toy Story 4. Yeah. You essentially knew who the characters mm-hmm. were. If I don't know who you are, all I can do is watch your ship being blown up or you to blow up another ship or somebody to die next to you, but I don't care. Right. Okay? If I don't care, then I can watch spectacle. Mm-hmm. And I learn nothing and I don't grow from it. Yeah, it's a pretty empty ticket purchase. Yes, thank you. Yeah, exactly. But... If Disney's running the whole industry, who cares? There's not going to be an end to it. You're, sell, you're selling. You're, you're, that's what you're selling. You're selling these hits of excitement, and then you're going to walk out of the movie, and 30 minutes later, you're not going to remember a freaking thing that happened. That's yeah. a lot of what's going on. When was the last film that you genuinely, it really grabbed you that was not a violent film or not a, I'm sorry, not an action film? I loved Boyhood. I think Boyhood should have won the Oscar that year over Birdman. Okay. I thought Boyhood was fantastic. But Boyhood was also a little bit of a spectacle in the experiment that, it, that created it, that you were going to film these actors over a period of 12 years. Do you yeah. remember that? I thought yeah. that was incredible. But it, it, but it also felt like a documentary and a film. And, and a Didn't make any money. 
did it make any money? I don't think it made any money on, uh, in a Titanic level. It didn't make any money in a Captain America level, but it's a movie called Boyhood. I know. <laughs> it was probably shot for I'm, just, I'm saying what the studios used to say. Oh, There's yeah. a line in Stephen Sondheim's musical, um, Merrily We Roll Along, mm-hmm. in which one, the, the producer says, boys, when Stravinsky writes a hit, let me know. Yeah. Okay? Did it make any money? If it didn't right. make any money, it's not even worth talking about. Let's talk about, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's very, very different. You have films now generating um, the profit that the entire industry made some decades back. Mm-hmm. But it cost $200, $250 million to make it. When Jim Aubrey, who was a rotten son of a bitch of the first water, took over at MGM, he said no film will cost more than $3 million. And while he was doing that, he also was wiping out all the old stuff in the catalogs and the music. That the whole MGM music department wound up under the Riviera Golf Course in West LA. Why? Um, takes a broom. Yeah. He, he, was a, he was not a loving man. But the point is, that was the ultimate question what did it make? Mm-hmm. Okay? And how much was buried and how much was deferred? And you see, you filmed it. It was all mechanics. And today it's exactly the Disney Empire is so huge that they can bury any kind of losses and still come out with a profit. Mm hmm. I mean, I, I could spend two hours and explain to you how it works, but it's scary. It's a machine that runs and runs and runs. And yeah. that's what's happened. So creative people, um, you talk about films like The Godfather, everybody's top 10 or 20 films, The Godfather will be in it. Mm-hmm. And it should be. But you'll never see it again. Uh, they took the time to develop who and what and where. You may not like the criminals, but you understood them. Right. You saw the motivations. You saw how they felt. You think that something like that might be possible in television? We do have stories like that on television in some oh. places. You had one of the greatest, greatest productions ever done called Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. I love Band of Brothers. I mean, not just good. It, and by the man. The man who, Spielberg and Tom yeah. Hanks and those guys. The man who wrote at least 10 of those is, lives here in Santa Fe. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought Band of Brothers was great. Everybody loves Breaking Bad. And obviously, The Wire was one of those shows that came out on or HBO along with Band of Brothers that was pretty big. Um, I, I do think that you start to get that slow burn on. I think that there's still a level of patience in an audience on television, which is why everybody seems amazed that television is where there's this amazing renaissance of storytelling, but there's just no patience in a movie theater anymore. That's because you're paying $300 for a seat and $17 for a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I want some value for that. When, right. when it costs that it much. Better be it better be big. It better be loud. <laughs> it no, better be a roller coaster. Uh, what they, I understand that they've been selling tickets to Hamilton for up to 400 bucks a yeah. pop. It's absurd. Yeah. In my era, if you were, again, now here's the difference. If you were a starving actor or working the game, you could stand in the back of a theater, a, a, a Broadway, for 50 cents and watch a show. Wow. And if you were lucky when somebody was disgusted and got up and left, you could get in their seat. <laughs> Uh, in the opera, 50 cents to go to the Metropolitan Opera. Or sometimes they let you in for free. Wow. Way up in the top and way up in the sure. back so you could learn your craft and watch the performers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ron, it is a different time. Thank you for sharing that stuff with us. Um, I'm honored that you asked. <laughs> oh, dude, I love sitting and talking to you. You always have some amazing stories. It's a different world. It truly mm-hmm. is. And it, you cannot... It, there is no way... You, you, have you seen the video of, of the two 17-year-olds trying to figure out how to use a dial telephone? They do those on YouTube every now and then. They'll say, "Let me, let, we'll take X generation and throw it at a bunch of millennials. And yeah, they're, they're, they're screwed. <laughs> when I, the last time I saw Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy, mm-hmm. 
Although there were new phones on the market that were the dial phones. Less than saw him in person. Yeah. It's a Stan Laurel. Yeah. Right. The stick telephone where you did the dial and you picked it up. You had this to your mouth and this to your ear. Right. Right. Stan still loved those. He didn't want to go with the modern stuff. But the point is, we're dealing in a totally different mindset. In the 40s, you, you had to know in a film who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. And it wasn't just black hats and westerns and white hats. It, you had to know them, and you had to care a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. Okay? You couldn't be unremittingly bad. We have political environment today, global environment, where it's, the shading is, is very different. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. People like myself are dinosaurs. I've said that to you from the day we met. Right. And someday somebody will come back and extract the footprints and concrete, but basically dinosaurs are gone. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope we hold on to you a little bit longer. Thank you. Here, Ronald. I like these chats. I like these visits. Every time I come to visit my mom up the road, I always come over here for, uh, to sit with you and hear stories. Uh, I'm in love with the, that, those eras, and I'm so glad that you're around and tell them. Thank you. Um, Geekscapists. I don't know what else to tell you, but uh, you can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those, those attention destroyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's where you can find us. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, you guys can come visit us at Comic-Con this summer where we have a booth there. Um, and come get your Geekscape shirts and whatever you need. Thank you for supporting Geekscape. If you enjoyed this episode, definitely share it with a friend. Just hit that button. And also maybe leave us a five-star review on whatever podcatcher you're getting this, uh, this episode on. Our numbers are going up, which I'm really excited about. Um, I don't know if it's my return to consistency or just the value, the value of the shows, but I really enjoyed doing them uh, these last couple of weeks um, as I wound out of production and back into uh, doing Geekscapes for you. And uh, I want to have a summer of Geekscapes. I'm doing a lot of travel, though, so be patient. I'm throwing these things up on the feed as fast as I can create them. Uh, Ronald, thanks for being on the show with me. Thank you, sir. You're a dear friend. God bless you. Um, and um, until we visit next. We'll meet it again. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 